0: Hey everyone, I'm Ryan Calamea.
1: And I'm Amy Gosha.
0: Welcome to The Divorce at Altitude, a podcast on Colorado Family Law.
1: Divorce is not easy, it really sucks, trust me, I know. Besides being an experienced divorce attorney, I'm also a divorce client.
0: Whether you are someone considering divorce or a fellow family law attorney, listen in for weekly tips and insight into topics related to divorce, co-parenting, and separation in Colorado. Welcome back to another episode of Divorce at Altitude. This is Ryan Kalamea. This week, we are joined by Amy Gosho. Amy, how are you doing?
1: Good. How are you, Ryan? Great to be back.
0: Yeah, it's been a while. We thought it would be good for listeners to hear about your recent Colorado lawyer article about dependency and neglect and the intersection with family law. For listeners that don't know, what is the Colorado lawyer? We've had a couple guests on recently who have written articles. So what exactly is the Colorado lawyer?
1: The Colorado lawyer is a publication that gets sent out to all lawyers in Colorado. So they have various areas where attorneys will write articles. And essentially, my article was a featured article for the family law section. So I wrote it on the intersection between dependency and neglect and family law, because as we know, there's a lot of issues that as family lawyers and clients, we you know, have to deal with. And the one that we're going to focus on today is what is dependency and neglect.
0: You did that article with uh, one of our superstar associate attorneys, Elizabeth Rose Hardman. And for listeners, they hear the kind of pre or mid show explanation about our firm. And we do personal injury, criminal offense and family law. But Amy, we'll get into this. But, you know, we know, but listeners, there's a lot of crossover. So family law can result in. Having you know some criminal cases or personal injury, we have a episode with Phil Goldberg to talk about personal injury, and so we, we're kind of on this run on the on the overlap. But for people that don't know, what is a dependency and neglect? What does that mean in Colorado?
1: Yeah. So in Colorado, it's cases concerning essentially child abuse and neglect. And so the acronym for it is DNN. So if you hear DNN case, that means dependency and neglect. And these are civil cases. So these aren't really criminal cases. There could be a criminal law case that's going on as well concurrently. The best way I can describe it is it is a little bit quasi criminal because you do, as a parent, have to come in and admit or deny certain allegations. So it gets pretty nuanced. It's kind of complicated, especially if we have clients who are going through, you know, a divorce or allocation of parental responsibility case. It can be, you know, overwhelming. Um, but I wanted to break down kind of what these issues are, you know, and who the players are and how to. Deal with some of those scenarios.
0: So if we use our Eric and Melanie story, there could be what we're talking about is if there's some sort of incident with, for example, Eric, where he is driving with the kids and using drugs then theoretically we could have there'd be a divorce, which you know listeners can are familiar with. But then you'd also have this D N N, but there could also be a criminal case for Eric. And so this episode in your article is focused on the the D N N component because there could be three different branches or legal processes relating to that one particular incident, right?
1: Right. And as a the family lawyer, if this is happening during, you know, a case where we're, we're representing parties on an allocation parental responsibility case or a divorce action, you know, the first thing they're going to do is call us. And so, you know, we wanted to give people kind of some information because it's super scary going through it. It's, you know, the, it's, it's just really hard and confusing. So, I just thought it would be good for us to kind of break down, you know, what DNN means, but also, you know, what the process looks like and also who the advocates are who are part of that process.
0: Well, other than my example of Eric driving, you know, while being high or, or something else, when is a child dependent or neglected? Can you give our listeners some explanation or or uh, provide some context to what DNN actually means?
1: Sure. So the statute really kind of breaks it down as to what scenarios where a court can find that a child is dependent and neglected. Um, the first one is if the child is abandoned by a parent. And I, I'm going to say parents because this can also be a guardian or a legal custodian of a child. Um, so all of these scenarios can apply to people in those I guess, capacities, or if a child is subject to mistreatment or abuse, the child can also lack parental control by actions or omissions of a parent. Like an example of that would be, you know, you just have a child who, you know, is under driving age and is just out at midnight and is not getting supervised, you know, like that's kind of out of the control of the parent. The child's in an environment that's injurious to their well-being, and also, for instance, if a parent is not providing, you know, the structure that a child needs by making sure that they get to school on time, making sure that they're getting their homework done if they're just not providing kind of those basic necessities. So it's not just always, you know, physical abuse or mental abuse. It can be just not doing the things as a parent, you know, the minimum things that you should do as a parent you know, for your child. The other things would be if we see truancy, like a runaway child is homeless, the child was born by a parent who used alcohol or substance abuse issues, you know, and the child was born that way. And also if, as a parent, if you subject your child to, you know, habitual abuse, that can be, you know, also, I'm sure Ryan, we talk to our clients all the time about, you know, that parent might not be, The problem or the abuser, but if that parent is not doing anything to essentially protect the child, that can also, you know, result in a DNN case.
0: Yeah. Back in the day, uh, when I was a baby lawyer, I did some DNN work and it's appointed work. I would be appointed by the state and the judges asked for uh, attorneys to volunteer because they just really had a dearth of attorneys that would act as representatives. And we'll talk about who the players are in a DNN action next. But I think it's helpful for listeners to understand the difference. I mean, when we say that they're not providing the structure or the, you know, an environment, I think, you know, some people could listen to that and they say, well, you know, Eric, He lets the kids play too many video games and that's just injurious to them. And it's really, I think, getting into where Eric has such a bad drug problem, for example, that the kids don't even get fed. I mean, those are the kinds of cases that you see. Or Eric might have a new girlfriend and the girlfriend you know, she hits the children or there's something with somebody else related to the parenting and that Eric just doesn't even let them or doesn't correct his girlfriend or do anything. And that might be an example that is a little bit more salient because when people hear that, they're like, oh, well, you know, Eric or Melanie, you know, they're thinking about their situation. They might say, well, that's dependency and that, you know, neglected.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is, you know, extreme and it can, we see a lot of times, you know, several of those factors, like someone could have an alcohol or substance abuse problem. And so, you know, they're not waking up on time to get their kids to school. And in one month, the kid is missing school 20 days or something like it's extreme. So good point. Indeed. So
0: what are, who are the various people I referenced that I would be appointed as an attorney for a parent? There's, but there's a whole host of different players involved. So can you tell our listeners, what does a DNA case look like in terms of the different people that are involved?
1: Yeah, so there's various roles that are involved regarding, you know, the parents, the court, and the children. And so for parents who are involved in a DNN matter, and again, the caveat is this could be guardians or legal custodians, the parents are called respondents um, in the action, and they each are entitled to... They can hire their own private counsel, or if they are indigent, they can also be given counsel attorneys to represent them in the action. We also have the Department of Human Services, which is involved. The family is going to be in contact with the caseworker. The caseworker is going to provide services and maintain contact with the family and provide updates to the county attorney, to the the court. We also have a guardian ad ad litem who in Colorado, that person has to be an attorney. This person is Essentially, there to look at what is in the best interest of the children. So, there's not an attorney client relationship between the GAL and the child, but the GAL will usually provide reports to the court as to what's in the best interest of the children. You also have the county attorney who represents the Department of Human Services, and the county attorney is the person who actually will file the formal DNN case, and that's how it gets in front of the court. And then you'll also have not every time, but a lot of times a CASA worker who doesn't necessarily have to be an attorney, but also who makes recommendations, you know, has contact with the children and provides reports to the court. So it can be kind of overwhelming because there's all these people. But, you know, my experience in DNN Matters is that every time you're in front of the judge, the judge is looking for an update pretty much from every single one of those people.
0: Yeah. And, and my experience was that you'd have a two different tables. As a lot of people know, in a, in a courtroom, you'd have two different tables and then there'd be the county attorney, then the caseworker, both of them independently would stand up and give updates. Then you'd have the GAL and the GAL, was the person that really, both the county attorney, there could be kind of alliance between the county attorney, the caseworker, and the GAL, but then also the GAL might say, I'm an alliance with, and they won't, it's not like Game of Thrones where they kind of create these formal alliances, but they'll take various positions that say, listen, I think the county is overstating the situation, or they might have a differing opinion as to what happens. And then you have the parent, and there could be two parents, where, you know, oftentimes there could be some abuse that is occurring by the father and then the mother also because she didn't do anything or allowed that abuse to happen. So you frequently will have both parents and it's all based on what do we do? And so the state in essence is kind of injecting itself in the family dynamic, which is a little bit different than a divorce. Yeah, exactly. This episode is brought to you by our law firm, Kalamea Gosha. Amy and I describe our law firm as an innovative and ambitious trial team that pushes the boundaries to discover new frontiers in family law, personal injuries, and criminal defense in Colorado. We currently have offices in Aspen, Glenwood Springs, Edwards, Denver, and Boulder. If you want to find out more, visit our website, kalamea.law. Now, back to the show. I mean,
1: my experience also is that the judge is really looking to the GAL for information and guidance, you know, like everyone else has input, but the GAL, you know, has a lot of input.
0: Yeah, indeed. And uh, for people also that we have an episode about the experts involved in a divorce or family law case when there is a custody dispute and there are some similarities. So there's a child legal representative that can be appointed in a divorce or an APR action. That's similar to a GAL where that attorney can Represent the legal interests of the the children, but and then you also have kind of a caseworker that is in the household in a DNN case, going and investigating, talking with various people, and that's somewhat similar to some of the work that a CFI or a PRE would do in, in evaluating. But obviously, there's there's different terminology as the law. We have a lot of acronyms, so but it's just for people to kind of understand what that. Uh, environment. What those terms mean
1: when they're comparing
0: it to a divorce.
1: Exactly. So I think the next thing we wanted to kind of touch on, or at least I wanted to touch on, is just a few of the various procedures related to DNN cases. So in order for like a DNN case to start, I think I mentioned that a county attorney actually has to file a petition, a formal petition for DNN. And then essentially, if the children are removed, there has to be a preliminary hearing within 72 hours after the DNN petition is filed and the the children are removed. And so at that hearing, usually the parents who are both respondents will figure out if they're going to have attorneys and if they're going to admit or deny to the allegations in the petition. The next kind of step is there's usually an adjudicatory hearing, um, and that's usually done within 60 to 90 days after the filing of the petition for the DNN case. What's interesting is, you know, as a respondent parent, you can ask the court to, you can have it by, you can request a jury trial of six. You can also just request for it to be a bench trial, which means in front of a judge, or in some counties, you can request it to be done by like a family law or by a juvenile magistrate. You know, so there's various things that you can request. My experience is usually It's not done by a jury, but you do, you know, as a respondent parent have the right to do that and it's limited to six jurors. If at the preliminary hearing as a parent, you admit to the allegations in the DNN petition, then you don't go to an adjudicatory hearing. You go right to essentially a a permanency plan where the court will issue its orders as to, you know, what needs to happen, you know, in the case, you know, services that should be done through DHS. You know, if the child is placed outside of the care of parents, usually the permanency plan, parenting plan has to be done within a year. So there is that time frame. Um, And then the court will usually hold like periodic reviews to make sure that, you know, the children are doing well on the plan. Parents are doing well on the plan to make sure that there shouldn't be any tweaks that are needed or further, you know, therapy or services. So that's kind of in a nutshell. Know the process.
0: So, what scenarios, Amy, do we see Eric and Melanie or a client, someone going through a divorce or uh, come to us for a family law case, and then a DNN case either has started or begins anew?
1: Yeah, so the situations as a family lawyer, and I'm sure this you've had this, Ryan, usually the context is the client is getting a call from the DHS worker to either have contact with the client or to make arrangements to have contact with the children. So in those cases, you know, the advice that I always give clients is make sure that you call me if a DHS worker, you know, calls you. And then usually I will call the DHS worker to figure out, you know, like, what is the status of the investigation? Is it just an investigation? Is there an open case? You know, like, is DHS thinking of referring it to the county attorney to file, you know, an actual DNN matter, you know, sometimes when the DHS worker contacts the parents depending on or my client, depending on the situation, they might've already had contact with the children because when there's a referral that's been made to DHS, statutorily, the um, DHS caseworker has to make contact with the child or children within 72 hours of the referral. Um, And they have the ability to do that, you know, at school, they have the ability to make that contact at school. So I think just in general, the best advice is if you're the client, contact your family lawyer for your family or lawyer to figure out what makes sense usually with the children you do want to cooperate with DHS to make the children you know available but it just depends on what's going on you know if there's a pending criminal case you know and there's fifth amendment issues you know it it just can get kind of complicated so not always and I know that clients hate hearing us say this but it really does depend on the situation that's why you know call us another scenario is that the DHS caseworker might request what's called a family meeting. So one thing I didn't really touch on in the process is there's kind of this like formal process of DNN cases, and then there's this kind of informal process. So the informal process is DHS really doesn't want to have to file a formal DNN action with the court. So sometimes, you know, they'll set up this family meeting to have the parent come to figure out, you know, it's almost like a it's not a mediation, but I kind of look at it like a mediation. They look at, is there a way to resolve the issues in this family? Are there, you know, services that DHS can extend to the parents or to the children that can really get this family, you know, back on track? So if that happens, and I've attended family meetings before, and I like to, and a lot of caseworkers say that that's not typical, but I want to know what's going on in that family meeting. And I want to understand, you know, I want to have part of that resolution. So I think if a caseworker asks to set a family meeting, let your family law attorney know as well, because there might be certain circumstances where we want to attend those to make sure that, you know, we are setting our client and the children up for success. And then I would say the other issue where it comes up is, you know, if parents can't agree on parenting time or decision-making, there might be you know, a PRE investigation going on or a CFI investigation going on. And so you want to make sure that you're getting the records from DHS, which can kind of be timely or it can take a while. And also a lot of times it can be redacted, like completely redacted. So there are some circumstances where you have to ask the court for, you know, us as attorneys to review those documents in camera unredacted. And I think also what the court or what the DHS what the department of human services can do is they can issue a like a safety plan and the safety plan on its own doesn't really have legal It's not really legally binding. It's just a recommendation. But you can take that safety plan as the family lawyer, you know, and if a motion to restrict parenting time is warranted, you can use it as an exhibit to say DHS is involved. They're recommending that one parent not have contact, you know, so there is, you know, an interplay there. And then I think it just, you know, we see a simultaneous DNN case sometimes when a divorce action is happening. Um, And, Usually, if there's an open DNN case, it's going to stop and halt everything in the domestic relations case until it's completely. You know, like until the permanency plan has been set in place, and then that's going to be certified, meaning the orders in the DNN case are going to be part of the domestic relations case.
0: Yeah. And how this could look, or how it could a scenario that is could come up, or I think that helps flesh out or explain what you're referring to, Amy, is Eric and Melanie get into an argument. One of the children calls. The police show up. They then determine that, you know, that there's not something that they're going to arrest anyone for, or they could. And it could be that Eric is yelling at one of the children or gets into an argument with his, you know, 16 year old son. And then the police determine because the children are the ones that called, they have a mandatory reporting or something, you know, that comes up. And then DHS gets involved and they come and they talk with the children and the parents. And then they determine, listen, like, we want to provide some support. There's obviously a lot of tension here. Can we do counseling? And they might not necessarily file, or they might be reluctant to file a formal DNN, but they can provide some services, counseling, or the family could say, listen, Eric and Melanie decided to go through a divorce. We're going to take care of this on our own, or Eric's going to need to get some counseling. That might matter, but if Eric tells the DHS worker that he's got a drug problem and he hit the child, then that will, you know, trigger or be implicated in the DNN action. But it can also matter for the divorce where Melanie, Amy, you represent Melanie, you could file a motion to restrict based on the various admissions or evidence that is gathered in that DHS action. So it gets really tricky, especially when you throw in the criminal element, there can be these different incentives as to disclose various information or maybe not to. So I think people, they don't understand really how uh, all this can come into play. And a lot of family law attorneys, I think, don't understand or really appreciate what can happen if they don't know what they're doing
1: yeah and i think as family law attorneys like if you're not the attorney who's handling the dnn matter if you're not the respondent counsel like i think the more communication that you can have you know like so you know what's going on it's kind of like an appending criminal case like there's been times where i sit down and talk if my client's the victim, I will sit down with the district attorney to figure out, you know, where we're at, when is the disposition, you know, what, you know, just to make sure that my client, I know what's going on and how it affects the family law matter. I think the last thing I'll close with that I think is important on terminology is there's kind of an it's called involunt. So I I kind of view the DNN formal process as it's kind of the involuntary process because no parent wants to have to combat a DNN case. And then there is a voluntary process where a lot of times DHS will try to work with parents and they'll say, this is about to become, you know, a DNN case, you know, like, here's what we need to do. So parents can voluntarily, you know, work with DHS, you know, and so as the family law attorney, you have to really determine, like, does it make sense for your client to work with DHS voluntarily?
0: Well, it's a complex issue. I know that the other part of your article was Liz's particular interest in the juvenile delinquency or juvenile justice process. We'll have a separate episode. For people that want more info, there are some how-to episodes about the intersection of restraining orders and criminal cases with parenting. So we'll have links to that in the show notes. But until then, I think that's enough to make someone's head Spin. And Amy, thanks again. And congrats on the Colorado Lawyer article. That's a big deal. I don't know if many listeners can truly appreciate the amount of work that I know Elizabeth and you put into it, but also just how difficult it is to have something published in the Colorado Lawyer. So kudos to you.
1: Oh, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Hey
0: everyone, this is Ryan again. Thank you for joining us on Divorce at Altitude. If you found our tips, insight, or discussion helpful, please tell a friend about this podcast. For show notes, additional resources, or links mentioned on today's episode, visit divorceataltitude.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen in. Many of our episodes are also posted on YouTube. You can also find Amy and me at kalamea.law or 970-315-2365. That's K-A-L-A-M-A-Y-A.law.